Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. Obviously, baseball is currently shut down right now, along with a lot of the rest of the world. Coronavirus, COVID-19 is spreading, but we at Baseball America did want to sit down and talk baseball with you guys. Uh, Obviously, there's still a lot of players that uh, we were expecting to have big seasons coming into this year. And Though the major and minor league seasons are delayed, we do expect these players to uh, be guys to watch for the upcoming season. And we still wanted to talk baseball and bring you guys some of why we think some of these young prospects are primed to take a step forward, whether the season begins in uh, May, June, or July. To do that, I'm joined by Matt Eddy, our fantasy guru and longest tenured Baseball America staffer, our co-executive editor. Matt, you identified a lot of these prospects that we're going to jump into here shortly. I want to start with what are some of the things you look for when picking out guys, in in this case, prospects you think are in for big seasons, both position players and pitchers? Oh, hey, Kyle. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure to to be here providing some diversion for for people in in trying times. Um, To answer your question, you know, I come at it more from a – I figure, like, my strength is not necessarily scouting players individually, but I feel like through the scouting sources that I have and that you have and that BA has along with my intuition, you know, 20 years at BA and some of the analytical stuff I look at, I feel like I develop, you know, good, good candidates for, for breakthrough seasons, um, call it intuition, I guess. Um, but some of the, the specific things I look for are, you know, power production, uh, especially in some of the more pitcher friendly leagues and ballparks. Because I think the, the, the way the run environments at the, at the minor league level really sh- shape production for players in a, in a way that, you know, as, as wise as we are to those factors, we don't entirely take those into account when we make these evaluations. So I'm looking for kind of players performing well at higher levels, players performing good in the power metrics, and just taking the park factors into consideration. Yeah, there's also youth relative to level, draft status. Uh, There's so many factors that could go into this, but you're right. A lot of it is, you know, the stuff we're hearing from scouts and, you know, take into account at the end of the day, the production, because at the end of the day, that's what matters. I want to start with two catchers, Miguel Amaya with the Cubs and Bo Naylor with the Indians are two you're particularly high on. Neither of these were in our top 100 prospects. However, we had discussions about both of them. Amaya played last year at high class A, Myrtle Beach in the Cubs system. Naylor played most of last year in low class A in the Indian system. Lower level catchers are a very, very risky demographic, but each of these has shown you some things that you like, uh, both on the metric side of things, as well as talking to scouts. What stands out to you about these two that you feel that these are the two catchers really primed to, to pop and potentially become top 100 prospects in the next year? I really like Amaya quite a bit as a, as a prospect in general, even, even with the riskiness associated with catchers, which is fair. Um, you know, the reports coming out of big league camp, Amaya is a, a new 40 man player. So he was in Cubs camp this year and new manager, David Ross was, was very, uh, spoke very highly of Amaya, which is to me very telling to have a, a tenured catcher uh, go to bat for a younger catcher. Um, but, Specifically, what he did on the field, um, he has a you know his power stroke, a power stroke to right center. I, I, I do like the guys who have straightaway power and opposite field power. I think he can potentially learn to turn on the ball a little more 
you know, and was looking for the right pitches. Um, and not, not lost in this is the fact that Myrtle Beach is a pretty severe pitcher's park. I think going from there to Tennessee, which is one of the more hitter-friendly, I think the most hitter-friendly in the Southern League, I think we're going to see some superficial improvement from Amaya to kind of build on the uh, latent skills he already has. One of the things that stood out, uh, I went out to Arizona for spring training before everything got shut down. And I had seen Miguel Amaya before. I'd seen him at Myrtle Beach. I saw him in the Futures game. What really stood out to me this year seeing him was how much bigger he's gotten. Uh, he was 20 years old all of last year. This is a very, very young kid still. And we saw, a, I saw, I should say, a, a tremendous amount of physical development. It really jumped out to me this spring, and it was good size. He got bigger, he got stronger. The uh, 6'1", 185 height and weight uh, is no longer, uh, that, that, that's an outdated height and weight as we see sometimes from international guys when they sign. And again, he was playing with the big leaguers, and, and he looked comfortable. He didn't look out of place. He didn't look out of sorts. Uh, you mentioned there was power last year. There was a, a really good eye for the strike zone. I uh, had a 351 on base percentage. Didn't hit for a high average, but you see power, a guy who's physically blossoming, dealing with the demands of playing catcher every day. You know, this is someone we did talk about as a top 100 candidate. He finished just outside of it. But you're right. Everything that we have seen and heard really into this spring is very, very positive. Yeah, for sure. Um... Yeah, he's, he's definitely one of my, my clicks to pick for 2020. Uh, and the other, the other catcher of note was Bo Naylor in the Indian system, a first-rounder from um, 2018. Uh, with, you know, Naylor, left-handed hitting catcher, um, he got off to a rough start, but the fact that the Indians even sent him to low A last year was atypical for them. They usually give their high school guys a year at uh, Mahoning Valley at short season. But they sent him right out there because they had confidence in his makeup and his skill level. And he proved them right when he uh, emerged in the second half. Um, you know, one of the metrics I look at is just like extra bases per batted ball compared with league. And, and Naylor was well above average in that. Like to me, that indicates there is some, some serious juice there, especially when you consider the first full season factor, the cold weather factor early in the Midwest League year, and just his youth and the, and the demands of the position. So I think there's a lot of promise there offensively for Naylor. Yeah, his uh, final 70 games of last year had a 473 slugging percentage, and that's when the dog days of summer hit and catchers start to wear down. We saw him hit for a decent average as well, hit 261, 323 on base during that time. But, you know, the power of the natural ability to hit is there. One of the things that was really interesting that came up about him talking to scouts last year is – a lot of teams are starting to try and measure uh, catcher's framing in the minor leagues. It's still developing. It's not as refined as it is in the majors. But a lot of teams talked about Bo Naylor really finished atop a lot of the various minor league framing metrics boards. By the same token, a lot of the scouts watching him didn't love what they were seeing behind the plate. This is where the receiving versus framing are two different things. You know, blocking, getting out of the crouch, all these other things that have to come. But I think when you see a catcher who's this young, has the bat he has, and the framing is there, it's understandable where the promise is. Yeah, and if you look at the numbers, base runners ran at him, ran against him at will. I mean, he was one of the worst at um, discouraging stolen base attempts in the league. Uh, so it is an open question, like him sticking behind the plate. Um, you know, he has third base in his background. That would obviously diminish his value in a fantasy setting. Um, but there is a <laughs> – it, it, it's up to the Indians whether they want to put in the time to develop him back there, uh, Bo Naylor. 
And one of the things we see too is sometimes these guys who have these potent bats, if they take them out from behind the plate, the bat ticks up even more. So even if for whatever reason he has to move, oh, hey, you have a power hitting, left-handed hitting third baseman, that's hugely valuable. That's something a lot of major league teams would like. So it feels like even if he doesn't catch, there's enough bat there that he can still succeed at another position, whether that's third, first, the outfield. Uh, you know, we have to see if they're going to develop him as a catcher, but it's understandable why he's a, a pick to click. The first baseman are two interesting guys. Lewin Diaz, who we saw was traded last year in the Sergio Robo deal uh, from the Twins to the Marlins. Michael Tolia, who scuffled a lot throughout the spring at UCLA, got hot late, put himself in the first round where the Rockies took him. What do you like about these two first basemen where, let, let's be frank, there's a lot of pressure on the bat? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, Tolia is a little perplexing, you know, switch hitter, you know, extra tall hitter. So I, I don't necessarily love that attribute, but you know, the power he showed in the Northwest league was, was legit. He's got great plate patience, probably never going to hit for a high average, especially against advanced pitchers. But from a fantasy perspective, <laughs> the, all the parks in the Rocky system favor hitters to a crazy degree. So I think, um, even if Tolia doesn't reach his ceiling in the major leagues, he's going to have a tremendous amount of trade value in the minor leagues, just based on the superficial numbers he's going to put up. So this is more of a fantasy play than a real life. Like you have a better handle on Tolia as a major league prospect. But for me, I'm looking at some of these attributes and seeing some pretty big minor league production. Yeah, you know, he's a college pick, but he was a young college pick. Uh, he turned 21 after the draft, uh, so it was his age 20 season last year. You mentioned switch hitter. He's also a really good athlete. He played first base. A lot of people think he'd be fun in the corner outfield as well. So I think anytime you have athleticism, youth, power, patience, it's a really good mix to start with. I know one of the things with him at UCLA that evaluators talked about a lot is there's just a lot of inconsistency. He'd have games or weeks where just the swing was not where it needed to be. Then he would turn it on and he'd look like the first rounder he eventually became. Then he'd fall back. So I think just iron, ironing that out. And again, some of that's youth. Some of that is reps. He was a Northwest high school guy. He's from Washington. He's a good player. And I, and I definitely get the attributes. I'm going to be curious to see just in terms of what is he going to be in the major leagues, just how that consistency really comes uh, in the next year or so. We've seen the Rockies do a really good job developing position players over the past decade. So you certainly are going to take the, the over on totally, I think, when you look at all those pieces put together. And Lewin Diaz really kind of came back last year a different prospect. He had struggled with some injuries. Last year, evaluators were much, much, much higher on him than they had been in the past. We saw the Twins trade him to the Marlins. What about Diaz stood out to you uh, both during the season and then he also went to a uh, Dominican Winter League and held his own there as well, playing against largely older players? Yeah, I really like Diaz. I, I think things clicked into place for him last year. He, he rededicated himself, improved his body, started, being, started taking defense seriously and was regarded in the Florida State and Southern Leagues as probably the best defensive first baseman in those leagues. Um, and you put that on top of a significant offensive breakthrough, you know, with 27 homers, uh, a similar number of doubles. I don't have it right here, but I, I like the fact that, you know, the, the doubles indicate that he wasn't just trying to pull the ball out exclusively. And he has a pretty good all fields power approach to go with this, you know, improved physicality and uh, defensive ability. I think he's definitely going to be one of the, one of the better first basemen to emerge from this year's prospect class. 
Yeah, and, and anytime you know you get into a new system, it's always interesting to me to see how guys adjust. Uh, he did hit worse with the Marlins after jumping over to Double A Jacksonville. However, going in now, having in theory that this first full season with his new organization, getting comfortable, getting acclimated, I, I think we'll find out what he has. But there's no question he was someone that was on the rise throughout last year, and uh, definitely someone to keep an eye on for 2020. Second base, Aaron Bracco with the Indians was a uh, well-regarded international signee. When you looked at Bracco and kind of took together the reports as well as the numbers, what did you see that you liked so much from uh, the young 18-year-old middle infielder? Yeah, with Bracco, you have a switch hitter who swings at strikes, uh, walks nearly as much as he strikes out, and hits for power. I mean, he, he impacts the ball when he, when he identifies his pitch. I think there is significant upside with him offensively. Uh, we have to remember, too, he was signed as a shortstop. The Indians had played him at second last season. I and mean, that was after he missed the entire 2018 season. But I think I think it was an arm injury. Um, but for him to come out that strong and, like you say, dominate the Arizona League and move up to the Penn League and continue to hit for power, yeah, I, I think this guy is going to be on the rise, especially at a, at a position where there aren't – it's not a, a deep prospect position in second base. Yeah, he's uh, you know, listed at 5'11", 175 switch hitter, but he had 21 extra base hits in 38 games last year between uh, the rookie-level Arizona League and the short-season New York Penn League, a 402 on base percentage. There's definitely a lot of promising things there. It's always a, a difficult jump moving from short-season ball to full-season ball, but in terms of what you want to see from an 18-year-old middle infielder, he definitely showed, uh, showed a lot of the components you like. Third base, there's two very interesting candidates here. On the one hand, you have El Harris Montero with the Cardinals, who is a former BA Top 100 prospect, scuffled through a really, really tough year injury-wise in 2019 and fell off. And then you have Brett Beatty, who was the Mets' first-round pick. Now, Beatty was one of the oldest players in the class. He was essentially the age of a college sophomore. He was beating up on guys who were high school sophomores, juniors, and seniors. And that led to some skepticism about, okay, how much of this is real versus him just being more physically developed than the competition he's playing. The Mets obviously felt strongly that it was real and took him in the top half of the first round. What about these two players do you like based on their debuts, especially Beatty, because on the surface, the debut was not spectacular. No, it was not spectacular in the batting average or strikeout department. And I think, you know, the Mets would agree with that assessment that it wasn't what they wanted to see. Um, I think, but, you know, the positives with Beatty are his, his power is, is nuts, especially to left center. I guess the Mets were saying he was hitting the ball into the upper deck at City Field, um, the left center field upper deck, which is pretty amazing. And the scouts who saw him noticed that he wasn't consistently hitting against a you know, firm front foot. Like he needed to kind of get that down and square up that timing in order to actually drive the ball. So that's one swing adjustment that he's going to have to make to, to reach his potential in games. So it's not beyond the pale that he can do that, but I understand your reservation as well. And then Montero, it's always so tough because a lot of times guys have good seasons, they get hit by injuries, and they almost seem to get forgotten about. I have the Cardinals system. I talked to a lot of evaluators. And while they saw some things this year that were concerning, the swing was not what they wanted to see. At the same time, there's still a lot of faith that the tools are in there for this guy to kind of get back. And especially when you're so stop and start, he had multiple injured list stints. It's really tough to get your, your timing and your pitch recognition down 
What are some of the things about Montero that you see that you like for the future moving forward? Well, the big thing is his healthy 2018 season, the Cardinals did not hesitate to move him to the Florida State League at age 19. Like to me, that speaks volumes when a team will move a young prospect in season to a, to a level where um, he's, he's very young. So that stood out. You know, he played pretty well in the, in the FSL in 2018, but and last year was just a mulligan. You know, I don't know what to do with that from a, a data standpoint. Yeah, one of the things with him, he, he's a big boy. I saw him in the Arizona Fall League, and again, he wasn't quite right. It was not a great Fall League turn, but you know, he's a big boy. Uh, he can move around third base okay. You know, he made all the plays he was supposed to. That had been a concern in the past. There's power in there. There's the ability to impact the ball. And, and again, it just seems like getting him a, a full season again, and he'll still be 21 years old next year going to double A. It'll be an interesting year, and I do think I agree with you that it's not a guy you want to jump ship on necessarily. The shortstops are really interesting here. One of the things you highlighted, some guys that had really good second halves and it really looked like they might have made a turn. Chief among them was Gabriel Arias. Uh, I saw him a lot here at Lake Elsinore. He's been a favorite of mine in the Potter system for a while. I ranked him as their number 10 prospect two years ago. Uh, apparently, I was a year early tremendously talented shortstop. It's a beautiful swing. There's impact in the bat, the pitch recognition, uh, and really the plate discipline was just so, so, so rough for so long. And we especially saw that early in the season. However, second half, he made some adjustments, just his general stance and his posture. He started seeing pitches better, not swinging at pitches below the zone as much. And we saw him really, really take off in the second half how much of that second half improvement is what drives your optimism about Arias? Yeah, that's a huge factor. I, you know, like you, he'd always been on my radar because the defensive reports are so strong. Uh, he's got, he's, you know, he's got the, he's certainly got a major league body. Um, but yeah, that second half where he improved his strikeout rate from 30% to 20%, that's gigantic. You don't often see that in season from a player. To me, that speaks to everything that you just outlined about Arias. You know, he finally, I think he just finally gets it. And, and again, here's a player moving from a pitcher's park to an extreme hitter's park this season. And I think his numbers are going to jump off the board at, at Amarillo in the Texas League. Yeah, moving from Lake Elsinore to Amarillo generally has that effect. He's going to be 20 years old all of this season. Mm -hmm. uh, this is someone that I think definitely has a case to be a top 100 prospect and ultimately a very good major leaguer, which is the point of all this. Another shortstop you highlighted was Leover Peguero, who was formerly of the Diamondbacks, was traded to the Pirates as the top prospect in the deal that sent Starling Marte to Arizona. I remember as we were sending our top 100 around to some various uh, officials around the game, we had Diamondbacks prospect Geraldo Perdomo on there and not Peguero. And I got the feedback that, you know, Perdomo and Peguero are not that far apart, and that's not a knock on Perdomo. That's a testament to Peguero. A lot of people really liked what they saw from this kid, and sure enough, he's traded for two years of a, of a relatively cost-controlled all-star center fielder who can both hit and defend, which obviously is an impact type of player and should make an impact for the D-backs moving forward. What did you see in Peguero that you liked? Uh, everything. I think, um, you know, he improved every facet, you know, more power, more base stealing aggressiveness, um, more efficiency at shortstop. Uh, you know, he added physicality without losing athleticism. And I think, I think this guy is a major up arrow guy and a, and a great get for the Pirates uh, when they traded Sterling Marte. 
Yeah, obviously there were a lot of upset Pirates fans when that trade was made. We have to, you know, be cautious here. Peguero spent last year at a rookie level Missoula in the Pioneer League and short season Hellsboro in the Northwest League. Uh, he's never played more than 60 games in a season. He has yet to see full season ball. He's all of 19 years old. I really only turned 19 at the end of last year. So this entire year he'll be 19. This is someone who's very far away. When you have someone like this where it's just such a small sample size and it's such a low-level caliber of ball, how do you kind of evaluate a guy like this and determine, yes, this is a guy like – this is very different than looking at a guy like a Gabriel Arias who has now two full seasons of full-season ball under his belt. Well, with young players, you have to take the plunge if you believe in the tools, you know, if you believe in the, the potential the player has shown. And in Peguero's case, he has shown little indications that he's – you know, building a case to be considered top 100 prospects, you know. I mean, at some point, these guys go from from prospect to major leaguer, and I think he's well on his way. The final shortstop that you wanted to highlight was Luis Angel Acuna with the Rangers. Uh, ben Bowler, who covers the Rangers system, has been very, very high on this young shortstop. He is Ronald Acuna Jr.'s little brother. Uh, so he's got the bloodlines, he's uh, got the middle infield pedigree, and he had a very, very strong showing in the uh, Dominican Summer League last year, his first full season, hit 342, uh, OPS just under 900, uh, more walks than strikeouts, 17 for 23 on stolen bases. On paper, everything looked great. At the same time, we see Dominican Summer League stars disappoint us year after year after year when they make the jump stateside. What are the things about Acuna that you like and believe that he can maintain moving forward? Uh, I'm mostly keying into Ben's enthusiasm. I think this this is a player type that Ben does tend to value quite a bit. You know, the, the bat control, middle infield or middle diamond player. Um, he doesn't have any bias against shorter players, and, and Acuna is listed at five foot eight. Um, so I'm mostly keying in on that and the fact that he ranked him number two in the DSL. You know, we'll see with Acuna. I think he's, you know, he's third on my list for a reason at shortstop, but I think he's definitely one to keep an eye on. Yeah, he's going to be one of the more interesting guys, I think, of all the players making the jump this year from the DSL to uh, the rookie-level Arizona League, in theory, uh, once the season gets underway. You had highlighted five outfielders, a couple of the stateside guys, a couple of the international guys. Uh, the Rockies, Brenton Doyle. The Dodgers, Luis Rodriguez. The Marlins, Peyton Burdick. The Royals, Eric Pena and the Cubs, Cole Roeder. I want to start with Pena and Rodriguez again, two players that ranked in the top 10 of their respective systems. Rodriguez was 10th for the Dodgers. Pena was in the top 10 for the Royals. Again, really good reports from Ben Badler. When you look at young international outfielders, what do you kind of look for? Because it's really interesting. There's very, very few international center fielders who go on to major league success as center fielders. And I remember doing this, uh, just looking at big leaguers a few years ago, I was surprised just how many outfielders up until this most recent wave with Acuna and Soto actually came stateside. There were fewer standout international outfielders than I thought there were. Um, that, that is true. I mean, the data does indicate that the outfield positions are dominated by U.S. players, or at least I shouldn't say dominated. A majority of regular players are U.S. players in the outfield. Um, with these two in particular, um, Ben had these two kind of neck and neck for two and three on his international ranking. And I think it's with, with Ben, you know, he's keying in on these, these players performance in games in game settings and just their efficiency of swing mechanics. And he's kind of 
Well, and also the scouting reports and the, and the feedback he gets from the industry. And for those reasons, I think these guys are two guys you're going to want to get in on, <clears throat> get in on early in order, even before they pop and become more household names next year in the Arizona League. Yeah, you know, talking to some people about Rodriguez and the Dodgers system, uh, the Dodgers are as good as it gets when it comes to accurately evaluating their own guys. And they have a lot of really, really, really talented players who have achieved a lot in the upper levels. And when I was talking to them about Rodriguez, they're like, yeah, this guy should be in our top 10. This is someone that, that they think can be an everyday impact center fielder. But even if he doesn't stick in center, they see some of the, the basic ingredients for him to be successful in the quarters as well. Again, a long way away, but there's a lot of people who are keen on both his upside and his presentability. It's not like this is a totally raw tools guy. In the context of teenagers who are about to play DSL and maybe jump to the AZL, he's, he's advanced for that group. But the three American players, I want to hone in on Peyton Burdick with the Marlins. Uh, this is someone who really, really stood out last year after he was drafted kind of, I don't want to say anonymous, he just he wasn't a top draft guy, third rounder out of Wright State, which has produced a couple of big leaguers recently. What do you like about him? The numbers speak for themselves, but what are some of the things that you see overall that you like? Because sometimes right-handed hitting quarter outfielder from college whose success came at low A, a lot of times you don't put a lot of stock in that, but he showed some things. Yeah, he really did. He had the third best weighted runs created plus in the minors last year among players with 300 plate appearances. Um, and the two players ahead of him were both triple A sluggers. It was Kevin Crone and somebody else. I can't remember who, uh, regardless, he has like this, this mental toughness attribute that I value. We had a really good org report on him by our Marlins correspondent, Walter Villa. Uh, if I'm remembering it correctly, Burdick has a, one brother who's a, an NFL player or an aspiring NFL player and another who was a former military uh, in the military. So he kind of has these, these toughness traits that I think are going to allow him to overcome what might not be the best, <laughs> sexiest profile you'll see among prospects. Yeah, he certainly delivered last year after signing. Spent six games at Octavia in the New York Penn League, quickly got bumped to uh, Clinton in the low-class A Midwest League. There he had 33 extra base hits in 63 games, hit 300 with a 400-plus on base percentage and a 500-plus slugging percentage. Um, everything was there. The reports were there. The numbers were there. I'm going to be interested to see what it, you know, what happens next year. He's going to jump to high Class A, the Florida State League, especially in Jupiter, which is a very, very, very pitcher-friendly park. And we see a lot of times college guys have success in low A. High A is where they're really tested. I think he's going to be – one of the more interesting guys to watch. What is your confidence level on him? How would you kind of rate that interval, if you will? Well, if he was in the Cardinals system, my confidence level would be an A. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think like guys like Paul DeYoung and Harrison Bader, who just went to low A in their pro debuts and just skyrocketed from there. You know, with the Marlins, you know, we'll see. I, I, I'd give him my confidence level, like on a zero to 100 scale, uh, 60 or 70. How about you? <laughs> you know what? I'm a big believer. You can only produce where you play, and he's produced where you played. So uh, I'd say, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt and see what happens. You know, from a guy who had really good numbers at low A to a guy who scoffed a little bit, Cole Roeder, he was the Cubs' second-round supplemental pick in 2018. I was really one of the big draft risers for his year. Showed really, really well in the rookie-level Arizona League. Went out to his first full season this year in the Midwest League and scuffled 
What are some of the underlying things you see there that you like to keep him on your sleepers list? With uh, Rotorer, it is secondary skills and athletic ability. Because, um, you know, the surface numbers were poor, obviously, but, you know, the underlying speed and power indicators were strong. You know, he walked 12% of the time. Uh, strikeouts were a little high for a player without a lot of present power or in-game power anyway. But I think these are definitely building blocks to build on. You know, he's probably never going to be a huge average hitter, but I think there's power speed potential here and and I think better days ahead for sure. And again, you know, Southern California kid, and he's from the greater LA area, going to Midwest League where it's absolutely freezing. That's something we see a lot. Warm weather high school kids, their first full season at the Midwest League, they struggle. He really struggled through April and May. I was much better in June once it warmed up. Fell back to earth in July, but finished the season relatively strong in August. So I'll be interested to see again just the second full season, getting him out of the Midwest League. Uh, going to the Carolina League, although as we mentioned, Myrtle Beach for the Cubs is by no means a hitter-friendly park either. Uh, is it fair to say he's more of a, a watch-and-see guy than a true arrow-up guy? Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, he's he's been on my radar for, radar for a couple of years for those reasons, but I think that's fair to, to proceed cautiously. And then Brenton Doyle, the Rocky system, is a really interesting case. Uh, he went to Division II Shepherd, which is in mm-hmm. West Virginia. And he went out and had a really, really strong debut. At the same time, he was a college player playing in rookie levels, and not just the rookie levels, but the very, very, very hitter-friendly Pioneer League in Grand Junction, which is extremely hitter-friendly. On the surface, sometimes you can dismiss this and say, college guy, in the Pioneer League and at the elevation of Grand Junction. You're buying in on it. What do you like about Brenton Doyle? Yeah, I think Doyle might have gotten a shot to move up to the Northwest League, but around midseason, he missed three weeks. I think he got struck by a foul ball when he was on deck or in the dugout or something. So he did miss three weeks on the injured list. And there was a point, I think, that coincided with that injury period where he the Rockies reworked his swing, so he's a little more up right now. So I think, I think when you see the swing mechanics and give him, you know, a, a long leash at Asheville because the tools all grade out pretty good. I think he's, he's potentially 50 or better across the board. I think there is some, some significant upside potential here for a guy like, you know, a fourth round division two draft pick. Yeah. There, there was the opinion after he was drafted talking to some scouts that they've thought that if he had gone to a division one school, he would have been drafted a lot higher just because the tools are loud enough and very, very clearly there is some hitting ability there. Uh, again, you can only perform where you play, and he performed where he played. Moving into the pitchers, this is where it really stands out to me. A lot of the guys that you highlighted were players who really turned a corner late in the year. Seth Corey with the Giants really struggled to throw strikes early on, and then around June just became almost – I mean, it was – video game numbers, what he was able to do throughout the rest of the year. Luis Medina, a hard-throwing right-hander with the Yankees, also has long struggled with his control, saw some tangible steps in the second half of last year. And then Joey Wentz, who was a well-regarded Braves left-handed pitching prospect, was traded to the Tigers in the Shane Green deal and really took some steps forward in his new organization. These three guys, the second half developments, what did you see and, and what makes you think these second half improvements were sustainable moving forward? Okay, so I'll start with Wentz. Uh, from, from what I gather, Wentz began to focus on 
throwing his off speed, you know, curveball, changeup, and locating them, uh, relying on them, and the dividends, you know, it paid major dividends. You know, his swinging strike rate doubled, his strikeout rate jumped to 12 for nine. And this began with Mississippi. This was not just post trade. So he was already taking steps toward um, his status at that point. So I think when you have a left-hander with a good fastball and two strong secondary or, you know, playable secondary pitches, I think you have a recipe for a good number four type starter at the very least. And, and he's, you know, he's going to be 22 all year with a chance to pitch in a, uh, shall we say, depleted Tigers rotation. Yeah, there's no question that the Tigers, any young player who's showing something will have a chance to get up to the major leagues very, very soon. Seth Corey is one of the more interesting guys to me just because of how drastic the improvement he showed was. He ended up finishing among the leaders in the minor leagues last year in terms of both strikeouts and ERA. 21 years old, a third-round pick uh, in 2017. There's youth. There is some pedigree here. It's not like he was someone that was totally off radars. But he really took things to a new level last year, uh, especially when you go back and look really once around the time June begins, uh, beginning with his first start in June through the end of the season. He had a 1.28 ERA. He held opponents to a 160 batting average, had 113 strikeouts in 84 two-thirds innings. The numbers were good on paper. Obviously, you don't want to scout the stat line. Uh, the stuff was really, really good, too. And I know that's been a, a driving force for you and, and feeling so highly about him. Oh, yeah. I think when you have such a wicked breaking ball and you're left-handed, you know, I, I give young left-handers a pass on control, I think, to a greater extent than right-handers, you know. <laughs> and I think this is, this is a guy who I think figured some things out and will be in our top 100 next year. I mean, I think he just missed this year, but he'll be, he'll be on the radar next year. Yeah, especially, you know, moving up now into the, uh, the the upper levels of the minors. He pitched all of last year at low Class A Augusta. He'll move up to high Class A San Jose, where he'll really be challenged. You know, high Class A is where things start to, to really get real in a lot of ways, uh, and then potentially with a move to double-A Richmond if he shows well in San Jose. So there's definitely a, a lot to like there. This will be a very telling year for him. And Luis Medina, Yankees fans have been clamoring uh, about this guy for a long time. Will he ever learn to throw strikes? Is he someone that we really should consider a, a legit pitching prospect? Or is he just one of many hard-throwing wild men who never actually get out of double-A? And I know speaking to scouts over the last couple of years, because he's been around. He made his pro debut in 2016 out in the Dominican Summer League. Uh, you know, He has four seasons now under his belt. And every time I talked to evaluators, it was, you know, I love the stuff. I do not believe he will ever throw enough strikes for it to matter. The overall numbers last year were not great on the whole, but we saw some second-half improvement. He finished the year at High Class A Tampa with two very, very nice starts there. What were some of the things you were seeing from Medina ultimately changed his future outlook? Yeah, I think he's certainly risky. You know, he's got a tremendous arm. Uh, you know, triple-digit fastball, hammer curveball. Uh, but even even in a successful second half, you know, his ERA was still hovering near four, his walk rate four for nine. Um, so there is, I think, I think the best way to say it is we're looking at at least a future as a dominant closer is in play now because I think the attributes look that way. And unless he takes another step forward with command, he could be looking at a future bullpen role. But 
you know, even so, this guy does have the stuff, you know, it's like an 80 and a 70 pitch to be an elite closer. Yeah, looking at his last eight starts, I hit a 1.77 ERA. Again, the hitters didn't really do anything with his electric stuff, as you talked about. 63 strikeouts, and here's the key, 15 walks in 45 and two-thirds innings. So things are definitely getting better, and, and you want to see that continuing. The other pitcher I wanted to hit with you on that you highlighted that doesn't quite fall into the great second-half group, but has a lot of things you like. Blake Walston, he was one of the Diamondbacks' many first-round picks last year. Mm. He was actually picked a little higher than expected. And as soon as he went out to camp, Diamondbacks officials were really, really impressed. Uh, kind of the classic story of you draft a guy, he looks pretty good, and then he shows up at camp, gets stronger right off the bat, and all of a sudden the stuff jumps pretty big. And it seems like if the draft were held again a couple months later, he wouldn't go 26th overall. He might go top 10. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, he's, he has all the attributes I like. You know, high school left-hander, can spin a breaking ball, um, added physicality, added velocity, uh, two-sport background. So he's, I mean, he's, he's pretty much how I would draw it up if I were looking for a left-hander in the first round of the draft. Um, and, you know, I think <laughs> throw the work ethic on top of that, I think he is a, a steal for the Diamondbacks where they got him. Yeah, very, very, very limited pro debut, just 11 innings, but 17 strikeouts and two walks uh, while getting up to a short season Hillsborough with the Northwest League. You talk about teams moving guys quickly, that tells you something. They keep him in rookie ball. After five innings, they say, yeah, you're too good for this. Go up, and, and he held his own in three starts of the Northwest League. That does tell you something. Oh, for sure. Well, we, uh, we shall see. These are uh, all really interesting players. And again, a lot of these are first-round picks, guys who've been on the top 100 or, or had good seasons. But all of them as of today are outside the top 100. But guys to keep an eye on moving forward, again, to become top 100 prospects and ultimately potential impact big leaguers. Some of these guys are closer than others. You, know, you talk about guys like El Harris Montero, who have double-A time already, all the way down to guys like Luis Rodriguez and Eric Pena, who just signed their first pro contracts and have yet to play. But these are the guys that we at BA think are really, really going to be interesting to watch in 2020, whenever the season does commence. And you have Matt Eddy's uh, stamp of approval on all these players, and I think that's definitely worth uh, at least a few spots in draft orders. And hopefully for bigger <laughs> teams, uh, a couple of more uh, all-star appearances or excellent impact seasons. Yeah, it was, you know, I hope we provided some entertainment and some escape for, for people out there and I definitely had fun doing this Kyle. absolutely it's always good to talk baseball and we'll be doing a lot more of that uh, again things are shut down but we at Baseball America are going to continue reporting on players we're going to continue reporting on the draft we're going to continue reporting on everything that's happening both on and off the field uh, I encourage you to check out baseballamerica.com right now for all the latest news and updates both about all the developments regarding the coronavirus and how it affects baseball as well as players and the things we love talking about, writing about, and watching. So there's a lot more good stuff to come, and keep it here for more podcasts as well. For Matt Eddy, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thank you for listening, everybody. Stay safe out there. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, 
a tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.